The EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is February 6th, and I talk to Florian Boller, a visiting fellow at Harvard University Center for European Studies. He is an assistant professor of political science and international relations at Kaiserslautern University in Germany. currently a visiting scholar at university uh, at Harvard University Center for European Studies. Great. So what's the future emerging in the European Union? Well, that's a difficult question, of course. Um, I think there are different paths, so to speak, um, what the future could look like. Um, at the moment, there are many challenges facing the European Union, but in these challenges, there also lies a chance the chance to to become more integrated, uh, to develop more coherent policies, uh, not only in for Europe itself, but also in, on a global scale. I think especially when you look at uh, the administration of Donald Trump and how he's like sort of cutting back the global um, leadership approach the United States usually took in the last decades then there could also lie a chance for Europe as to step up and um, develop its own role in the world and develop a more like a leadership approach to world affairs also. I see. Um, Nicholas Luhmann asserts that what makes democracy special is the unusual of keeping open the possibilities of future choice. How do you see the role of choice in democracy? Um, of course, choice depends on, on people who develop options for voters to, to decide on. So I think, of course, you can say those choices are developed by society and uh, are brought up by those thousands of political ideas that float around in society. But in the end, you, you have to have... Um, movements, parties, um, maybe also academics who like foster those ideas and bring them to a co coherent set maybe of an ideology or of a party program. And then in the end, um, people can decide upon those ideas. Um, but I, I truly believe that there is choice in democracy and um, that it, even if like a movement like populism uh, in the US or in Europe um, is sometimes seen as a danger to democracy. It also can be uh, a chance in the way that um, democratic institutions become more resilient against those threats and those um, challenges. So I think it's good that we have different ideas. I think that it's good that we have kind of a pluralism of ideas and this makes democratic systems more healthy, more resilient uh, in comparison to author authoritarian regimes, for example. Of course, there are some problems. Um, I mean, you usually 
um, you can talk about the state of democracy on a European level, uh, like talking about the European institutions, like the European Parliament, for example, and of course there are certain uh, issues uh, on in terms of democratic quality there. You have uh, not a single voting system for the European Parliament, you have um, low turnout rates in some countries, um, and you have, of course, the problem that most decisions are still taken on the European level by the European Council, um, and not so much by the directly elected um, European Parliament. The power of Parliament has grown, but uh, there are still some issues there. Um, so this is the first part of like the, the issues, the challenges of, of the state of democracy in Europe. On the national level, we have as well uh, some problems in some, some countries. Um, in Poland, there was a lot of discussion about um, the new government trying to um, like um, sort of diminish the power of the constitutional court. Um, but there are also issues uh, in Germany um, when you think about um, uh, yeah, the danger of radical right parties and the issue of freedom of speech. Um, the German government tried to um, forbid the national right party uh, and was um, struck down by the constitutional court. So also on a national level, level we have those challenges. But overall, I would say um, the state of uh, European democracies is quite um, healthy, quite resilient against those challenges. Um, but that doesn't mean that those challenges are not important or that those problems are not important and that we not should uh, like follow up on these challenges. Uh, I think it's important uh, to think about um, giving the European Parliament more power, um, like trying to find better solutions for the European level of governance. But I also see that there is a, a difficulty here um, because many people in, on the national level think that the European system has too much power, that Brussels has too much power. So, um, and I'm not so sure how to, to overcome that, um, that obstacle between the will of the people saying, well, we should make more decisions at home on the national level uh, in comparison to, to Brussels making decisions. So kind of have, should try to have that linkage uh, strengthen between the national level and Brussels and to have more transparency on, on the level of Brussels uh, decision making. How can be, be that linkage strengthened? Like mm -hmm. What should be done is at least at the EU side? Yeah. Um, first of all, I think the problem is also honesty, honesty of the national politicians, because many national politi politicians try to avoid blame, uh, because at most decisions the EU takes, um, national officials, members of the government, um, are part of the decision-making process from the beginning to the end. Uh, and then at home, they tell people, well, this was not our decision, that was not our idea, it was Brussels who took the decision. And that's, that's just not honest. So, and I think the media, of course, um, should try to hold politicians at a national level accountable for those blame avoidance strategies because they are not right, they are harmful for, 
um, democracy and for the trust of voters towards Brussels. So that would be the first thing, I, I think. And the second is um, uh, that we should have more discussions about Europe. Like, uh, there is a tendency to just focus on national politics um, and not so much on, on the European perspective. And, you know, all this, I said that in the beginning, all this talk about how Trump uh, can be a threat to uh, the transatlantic um, value system, value partnership. It's also a chance because uh, we now see how important those values are and if Europeans, even if, uh, even without uh, UK, if Europeans can agree on those values, can stick together, then um, they can sort of put more emphasis on that European perspective, not so much on the national level. What role can citizens play to influence political processes at the EU level and shape its future? Mm -hmm. I mean, besides the regular uh, opportunities like voting for the EP parliament, voting for the national elected officials, um, of course you can influence um, those decisions by like uh, joining uh, parties, like expressing your views uh, on the public debate. Um, I think it, in, for example, TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, is a good example how um, national movements, which had also transnational um, connections, um, sort of influenced uh, the politics in Brussels and on the European level. The movement started maybe more on a national level, but then grew out and um, became uh, a transnational European phenomenon of criticizing um, that idea to have the trade partnership with the United States. And um, here you see how ordinary citizens demonstrated on the street against this treaty, this proposed treaty, and sort of uh, pushed their, uh, their representatives to change course. And in the end, um, even before Trump, I think the treaty was, um, was dead uh, because many people protest, protested it and there was no support on the national levels for that idea. What kind of future would you like to see in Europe? You know, I'm not a politician. I try sort of um, try to analyze maybe uh, the different forces that are shaping European politics. Um, but I would say it should be a middle-of-the-road um, policy overall. I, I'm not in favor of a return to the nation-state because I think the problems and challenges that Europe is, are facing um, is they're not, um, they cannot be solved purely on a national level. So we need a European integration and we need to strengthen European institutions. On the other hand, I'm not in favor of totally abolishing all the nation states and have like a European super state. I think that would be too much to ask for the, uh, of the citizens. In the end, we um, would have like an out of touch um, Brussels government um, and this would like, spur many populist movements again and uh, this was, would be um, 
not the solution that I would uh, think would be good for, for Europe. So it should be in the middle of um, purely nation state and purely um, a new super state of the European Union. Um, so strengthening the democratic institutions in Brussels, uh, strengthening the, the linkage between uh, national and European levels, and uh, trying to be more honest um, about you know, the challenges Europe, Europe's facing. Uh, when you look at problems like the Euro crisis, there was also this problem of um, lack of honesty, really, because um, people were not told by their governments that we have these problems and that we should somehow try to um, develop policies, policies maybe that would be hurtful in the beginning, but then later on solve the problem. A little bit about the rise of nationalism mm -hmm. across Europe and then election of Trump and then mm -hmm. Brexit. Mm -hmm. How do you think it all is going to affect, uh, affect European Union's foreign policy? I mean, there are several scenarios. One is that um, Europe comes, more, comes closer together and cooperates even on security and defense policies which in, in the past was um, the, U, the EU and uh, European countries were not very successful. Um, and if Trump pushes on, on NATO, um, on European countries to do more, um, and at the same time withdraws its influence from NATO, that can be, um, the outcome can be that uh, Europe will will be more integrated on security and defense policies, which is a precondition for Europe to become um, more influential in, on the global scale. Um, but there are uh, counter forces, I would say, uh, that could lead to different scenarios. One is that, of course, um, the Brexit is a problem for uh, European Union on a global scale, because obviously UK is a powerful member on the international level. It's, it's a permanent member of the um, Security Council of the United Nations. And so without the UK, um, the EU certainly loses influence. Um, but then again, um, the UK always was a, a brakeman to develop a coherent foreign and security policy on a European level. And without that, that, that breakman, maybe um, Europe can formulate a more coherent policy on a global level. Um, if that all fails, and if uh, Europe is not learning the lesson out of Trump and out of Brexit, this can mean that um, the role of Europe uh, internationally will decrease further. So that would be the third scenario I could think of. Is there anything I didn't ask you about? So we talked a little bit about so many things. We didn't really go into, into discussing the challenges mm. to, to debate. You can say a couple of words about the challenges is currently facing maybe. Mm. I mean, um, of course, immigration is a huge challenge. Uh, it's, it's a challenge for solidarity on a European level. Um, but I think in the last two years of this immigration crisis, the refugee crisis, um, there was a lot 
talk about how um, principles of European society uh, were ignored by some countries, like human rights uh, issues, um, but also solida solidarity between um, the countries that uh, yeah, Western um, countries were ignoring the needs of South European countries during that crisis. But in the end, sort of Europe, Europe managed to, to overcome at least um, the immediate urgency of the crisis. It's not solved yet, um, but with uh, the deal with Turkey and also the regulations um, uh, at the borders, increase of border control, um, trying to find a, um, a better system um, for like uh, distributing uh, refugees in, in different European countries, I think there is some progress there. And overall, I think the chances are good that uh, Europe doesn't break up over this challenge. The second major challenge, I would say, is of course uh, the financial crisis. But here again, um, the crisis seemed very urgent and very problematic two, three years ago when Greece was on the brink of, of collapsing, when it seemed that Italy and Spain would be the next countries in line for an economic breakdown. Uh, but that situation also seemed to um, uh, stabilize. Um, again, here, the problem is also not solved, and maybe we've seen five to 10 years better how the crisis evolved. Um, but Europe managed to update its institutions, set up new mechanisms for dealing with economic uh, crises like this, sovereign debt crisis, and um, also enforce new policies on a European level, um, which also influence the nation state now, and um, improve that system that states cannot just make debt uh, uh, and uh, just go on with it. So um, I think those improvements show that the European Union is capable of um, dealing with challenges and transforming in a way to, to be able to adapt to, to those different challenges. Mm, maybe one thing that I find always interesting when I travel around Europe is um, how this is also a generational question. Um, because many um, of um, my generation and of uh, younger generations, they travel a lot across Europe, they learn different languages, they study abroad. I mean, this uh, Erasmus program is maybe one of, one of the most important programs and policies of the European Union. It's uh, sort of a, a program uh, to help students finance their um, study visits abroad. And I think through those exchanges, uh, it creates a generation who doesn't want to get rid of um, the positive sides of European freedoms, uh, freedom of um, labor, and etc. Et uh, no border controls, uh, one currency in, in many countries. And um, I think if that generation continues, um, and make it, uh, would make it w its way to, to the institutions and um, into politics, um, I think we would see 
um, that this generation would fight populism and anti-European anti um, tendencies in the countries. Th that was the case in, in the Brexit um, vote, that uh, many of the older generation voted in favor of Brexit, many young um, voters voted um, to stay in the European Union or they didn't show up for, for, to vote because they thought it would not be happening. But um, I think there was a generational divide and I think time will be in favor of the young generation. So what you're basically saying, European Union succeeded in building a policy in education mm -hmm. to bring together European young people who are living a truly European kind of life and they're feeling this European identity building yeah, through this educational experiences. Yeah, I think you're right. European identity building uh, is building up in the younger generation. I think you can see that um, through cultural exchanges, through education, um, you know, um, it's really important um, to learn different languages uh, in the job market because of globalization, but also because many uh, young people in Germany are applying for a job in Brussels or they are applying for a job in, 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 uh, in the Netherlands or in France and the other way around. So, um, and this kind of exchange uh, is really um, transforming how people um, perceive the Europe as such. And, sort of like not change their identity from national to European, but just um, add up to the, the, their identity uh, a European side. Thank you. Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C. 